Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. This is episode 17. Jamie Eads joining you as always. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. None of this is possible without any of you. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to get to some listener questions and we will be joined by Mike Pride. Mike is a drummer that you should know. Uh, Mike plays in several different bands uh, from Bacteria to Boys. He has a collaboration with other drummers called Drummer's Corpse, which is just really cool. Uh, He also has a piano trio up in New York City called I Hate Work. This is a guy that you should know. And we'll get to Mike here in just a second, along with some listener questions. So please stay tuned. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may be the best kept secret from drummers today. Lost Cabos Drumsticks makes the finest tools to touch a drummer's hands in the business. The best news, almost every popular stick size is available in both white hickory and red hickory. If you don't know what red hickory is, it's made from the heartwood of the hickory tree, unlike regular white hickory, which is made from sapwood. Red hickory drumsticks will hold up to even the hardest hitting drummers. Their durability comes from the density of the wood, but they do not sacrifice the feel. Please visit LosCabosDrumsticks.com to learn more about their products. And don't forget to ask at your favorite retailer for Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, everybody, as promised, we're going to get to some listener questions here. I typically don't bore you guys too much with stuff about me. Uh, And we talked to our fantastic guests, and today will be no exception to that. But I did get a few questions this week that I thought uh, might be good to answer. So Scott from Oklahoma actually uh, emailed in, and he wanted to know about uh, the Drum Shuffle's bumper music. So our our intro uh, instrumental and our outro music. And that actually comes from a a band that I spent a lot of years in, a band called Funnel, based out of Georgetown, Kentucky. And that track is actually, uh, it's called Inner Fire. It was on our record that we put out uh, in 1998 called Wide Open. Um, And it is actually the intro to that song. And then the outro to our show is the guitar solo section in that song. And you'll be hearing a little bit more about Funnel, uh, even though, uh, you know, those guys are my best friends. Um, You know, Kevin, Phil, Alan, Matt, they, they are my best friends. They're brothers to me. So a shout out to them today. Uh, but there is some talk of maybe remixing um, and remastering that record for the 20th anniversary, which is this year. So I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I certainly hope it does. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'll keep you all posted on that. But um, our bumper music. Um, uh, so, Scott, if you're listening today, that bumper music does come from one of my bands from 20 years ago. And, you know, part of the reason that I use that, first of all, I'm really proud of that record. And, and it was, um, you know, uh, really 
cool time in my life uh, w- with those guys. But to license other artists' music for use in a podcast is very, very expensive. So uh, we we decided to use something that uh, that I owned at least part of the rights to. So so that's the reason we use that. Our next question comes from Alex uh, down in Tennessee, uh, our neighboring state uh, to the drum shuffle. And Alex asked what I thought was a really funny question. He said, you know, sometimes when you're talking in your intros and outros, et cetera, it sounds like I hear a tambourine in the background. So are are you (laughs) the question was, are are you sitting around your percussion setup when you record the show? And the the answer is no. Uh, What you're actually hearing, and I think it's kind of cool, you are hearing the collars of my dogs or cats. Um, So sometimes when I'm sitting here doing the the intros and outros for the show or even during the interviews, uh, the dogs or the cats will decide to go take a peek out the back door or the front door and you can actually hear the the metal tags on their collars jingling so no it's not me uh you know kicking a tambourine or or playing a tambourine (laughs) while i'm doing the show uh you're hearing the pets because i do the show from uh my home office uh here at the house so uh you know the animals don't always cooperate with my recording schedule they uh they rule the house so to speak so uh, that's the answer to, uh, to to Alex's question from down in Tennessee. And uh, our final question comes from Dave, and Dave is in Oregon. Uh, so thanks for writing in, Dave. We appreciate it. Dave wanted to know the timing of the show. Um, he, he wanted to know how quickly the interviews go out after they're done. And to answer Dave's question is uh, it's kind of convoluted, but some weeks I will do two or three interviews uh, with our guests and um, then, uh, you know, uh, they can't go all out at the same time. We're a weekly show. Uh, some weeks I do no interviews. Um, so what we do is we will record the interview. And then before that episode, before that interview becomes an episode, I will do an intro or an outro either on Thursday or Friday. Um, right before the show goes live on Saturday at noon as always. So, um, that's kind of how the timing works. And, you know, sometimes we reach out to a drummer and they get right back to us. Uh, sometimes, uh, we reach out to a drummer and it takes a couple of weeks to hear back from the representatives. Um, so it's really catch as catch can. And, you know, please keep your emails coming. We, we love to answer your questions and, and suggestions for show guests. We love getting those. Um, but just suffice it to say, if I could get Peter Chris on the show, I certainly would. If I could get, uh, you know, Neil Peart on the show, I certainly would. We have reached out to um, just tons and tons of drummers and, it, you know, they have tours that they're on. They have books that they're promoting. Uh, some of them don't do press. 
Uh, just know that we are working really hard to bring guys and girls to you that you want to hear from. Uh, and we do have some great guests booked uh, coming up, you know, over the next couple of months. We have interviews booked with uh, with with great drummers that you're going to want to hear from. So as always, keep your emails coming. It's the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com. Our web address is the drum And my web uh, site is Jamie So keep all your questions and suggestions coming. We love hearing from it. So today's guest, uh, I'm going to do a quick intro for Mike pride. Mike is just such a super cool guy. And, you know, I think Mike would agree with me. He's a drummer that's down in the trenches that's working really hard and this is somebody that I think everybody should know. Mike grew up in Maine and since 2000 he's been in New York City playing in a variety of bands uh, primarily in the jazz genre uh, and it just has a lot of cool projects and he's a great teacher as well and and he has a, a full stable of students up there in the city uh, that he works with on a weekly basis. So um, we're going to talk all about all of his different projects um, today and again just such a cool guy check him out on his website it's mikepride.com so without further ado let's welcome mike pride to the drum shuffle hey mike how's it going today i'm doing good jamie how are you man i'm doing just fine hey thanks so much for your time we really appreciate you coming on the drum shuffle and visiting with us for a little bit this evening no, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Mike, what we like to do with all of our guests is is really just go back to the to the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up and and how you uh, got into drumming. Um, well, I grew up in Southern Maine, and um, most of the people, with the exception of my father, I had three brothers who were all musical, and my mother was musical, um, and my oldest brother is uh, a whole generation older than me and he's a professional musician so I was always raised around music and uh, played uh, my brother played in you know church services and things like that and so I started studying guitar with my brother when I was about four and um, switched to I believe trombone in fourth grade I guess and then I wanted to switch to saxophone in sixth grade, and I wasn't allowed to because there was too many saxophone players. So I picked drums because my good friend was in the drum section and um, took to it pretty immediately and, and uh, was always into it and you know saved up some money to, to get a drum kit and was kind of always active right from the beginning and had some sense of functioning uh, in a band because I played music since I was so young and had a, an older brother who who led a band and so it always just seemed like a, a normal way to to a normal vocation to choose even at a young age and you know not until i was a teenager that i realized what a seemingly asinine vocation i chose but i stuck <laughs> with it it's all been good uh, isn't that the truth? Um, you yeah. know, it, uh, the, the old joke, you know, it's, uh, if you want to get rich, don't be a drummer. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, totally. yeah. So, um, well, growing up in, in Maine, you know, I mean, it's beautiful country up there, but I, I'm assuming, and I don't know what the music scene is like in Maine. Um, but I know that you're in New York city now and you're staying really, really busy. Um, 
did you go to college for music or did you just kind of uh, at some point decide, hey, if I really want to work as a as a drummer, I'm going to have to get down to the city. Walk us through that transition for you, if you don't mind. Yeah, well, uh, as a teenager, um, I mean, I knew at that point that I was going to be a musician. Um, and I already had was making a, a living as a drummer in Maine. Um you know, a little family nepotism goes a long way. So anytime my older brother, who was maybe at the time in his late 30s, um, needed a sub for his drummer for his wedding band or bar band or whatever, um, I guess because he was my older brother, I was, able, I was able to do those gigs. and I just went with him. And that was probably from 14 or 15 on. I had um, fairly consistent weekend wedding gigs and um, played in played in church on Sundays um, that didn't pay anything, but I did it just to do it. And um, then I did study music seriously all through high school and had a great drum teacher. And I used to sub for him on uh, theatrical productions he was doing that he would sub out to his students. Excuse me. And uh, then I went to college at the University of Southern Maine. Uh, initially, I, for whatever reason, I thought I wanted to be a film major. And I did that for a, a semester or a year with a minor <clears throat> in jazz performance. And then I decided to major in composition and keep my minor in jazz and stop going to film school. Uh, I did that for another year or so, and then I moved to New York and uh, studied at the New School, which has a program called the Jazz and Contemporary Music Program. And I went there for a little while. Um, but really, I went to New York not necessarily to to be able to work more in the way I was in Maine. I mean, in, in Maine, I think I never would have been able to get much of anything going as a creative artist and as a, as a creator of, of, of stuff. Um, but I could have done very well to just stay in Maine and, and keep playing in a wedding band. Or uh, I don't think there's much session work around there, but I could have picked up little things here and there. But really, uh, my interest has always kind of been more... Uh, experimental music and avant-garde music and definitely jazz music. Um, so even as a high school kid, I always kind of knew that when I could, I would move to New York. Um, when I was around 20, I had decided I really wanted to study with uh, a guy named Milford Graves, who is a drummer who lives in Queens, who was one of the original, what they were, they were called the free jazz drummers, but uh, like avant-garde jazz drummers. Um, he played at John Coltrane's funeral and uh, played with a guy named Albert Eiler, who's a very uh, important avant-garde jazz saxophone player. And I loved his music, and I knew he was in Queens, and so I just kind of went there and with the goal of studying with him. Didn't know how to find him, so I studied at the new school for, for a year. Um, and then I met him at a concert and asked him if I could study with him, and he said that I could, but not through the new school. Um for whatever reason. So I actually dropped out of the new school and started studying with Milford Graves and would go to his house most weekends for about a year and a half. So by then I'd been in New York two, two and a half years and um, was always working and was always writing music and creating bands off of whoever I heard playing or knew from school and kind of was immediately working uh, a lot, you know, maybe anywhere from five to six nights consistently a week um, back in the early 2000s when there were a lot of... Um, clubs in New York City. So it all just kind of seemed to make sense, and there was no massively scary move aside from just moving to New York and not really knowing anybody and 
I knew that I was going to be out at concerts enough, and I was confident in what I wanted to do, and a lot of what I wanted to do was influenced uh, by music I heard coming out of New York, so it just seemed to make sense. Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, I know that the the jazz scene in New York is, is still, you know, fantastic, um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, obviously... You know, I think your playing lends itself a little bit more to the jazz side of things. Um, did you did you grow up into jazz? I mean, was, were your influences as a young musician, you know, jazz guys or uh, but because and I'm asking it that way because I know you do some rock stuff as well. Or did you just mm-hmm. really like good drummers, you know, on, on both sides of the coin? Yeah, I mean, I definitely liked good drummers. Um and, you know, I read Modern Drummer, so I was following, you know, whoever you would follow from that, the Dave Weckles and the Steve Gads and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, on the periphery, kind of following what those guys were doing. Um, I always liked jazz music. I always liked uh, 20th century classical music. Um, I was also, at the same time, really into straight-edge hardcore and played in lots and lots of hardcore bands. Um, and I did a lot of noise music, <clears throat> where maybe I wasn't really playing drums much at all i also sang in some bands so i just was kind of into everything um and then yeah when i moved to new york i thought i was a jazz drummer um just kind of coming from me maybe i didn't really have a good concept of what it actually meant to be a jazz musician and i so i thought i had a concept of swing and comping and and how that works and i i think i faked well enough when i first moved to new york but in hindsight i definitely was a rock drummer um, I was hugely into like, Primus and Tim Alexander um, and listened to Rush when I was a young teenager and all the normal stuff, stuff I consider normal for a drummer growing up in the 80s and 90s to, to be listening to. Um, and uh, when I first initially got to New York, I wasn't doing anything that would be considered jazz by serious jazz musicians, but I was always improvising a lot. And then a great saxophone player, uh, his name is Jonathan Moritz, who's now one of my best friends, uh, needed a drummer last minute for a tour, and we had a mutual friend who worked at a place called Manny's Music, which was a music store in Midtown that I first worked at for a couple months. So he told him about me, that there was this drummer working in the drum department who seemed to have his stuff together, and he just kind of hired me blindly for his jazz quartet tour. Uh, I was totally, completely musically unprepared for that and uh, embarrassed. But I kind of got it together really quickly in the, in the week of that tour. Uh, I worked really hard and had a lot of good input from great jazz musicians a little bit older than me. And by the time I got back, I, I kind of had a whole different concept of what it meant to be a jazz musician and started working on it really hard. And uh, I think I had a good concept, concept of that pretty quickly from that point forward. But uh, I definitely, for a long time, sounded much more authentic in a rock situation than in a jazz situation. I just worked really hard to kind of change my relation to the beat and and my touch. And that's really the only difference that I ended up finding that was consistent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, I grew up in in the rock and roll world. And, you know, if you ever see me playing jazz, you you would immediately go, man, this guy's faking it, (laughs) you know, fake it to make it right. I mean, I'm just it's just not my thing. I love listening to it and I love great jazz drummers. It's just not something that I do well. Um, But you brought up a really good point. You know, you said um, when, when you joined that that tour, you said I was you know, musically unprepared. 
And, you know, sometimes those gigs that you're not fully prepared for are what really make you a whole lot better as a musician, you know, because it's, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, sink or swim at that point, I guess you would say, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so you work in a lot of different situations now. And, you know, I, I want you to talk about some of the different projects that you have going. You're, you're a really busy guy, which is, um, you know, I think a testament to you because to stay that busy in a place where there's so much competition uh, is really impressive. But, you know, I've been checking out your stuff, um, you know, from bacteria to boys, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the greatly named drummer's corpse. I love that. You know, that's, that's just fantastic. Um, you know, I hate work, which is kind of more of a, a, a piano, trio, I guess you would say, but you know, tell totally. us, yeah, tell us a little bit about the different projects that you're playing with and, and, you know, how you form those and, um, you know, just, just let our listeners know and, and, you know, certainly tell us where we can pick up some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've always liked, <clears throat> by the time I was, a, a, you know, an adult, I guess I had gotten over any like avant-garde snobbery and I'm pretty much a, a fan of any music that that feel that resonates with me which to me just means that probably that music was was played with some sincerity um although you know I'm certainly not beyond being fooled um but so I think ideally um at this point of my life I think that jazz music when it started was reflecting um an instrumental take on the musical times and it got codified and has gone through some, some a few seismic shifts. But basically, um, it doesn't always reference um, current art and current music at this point. Um, and that's fine. I play lots of traditional jazz, and I love it. Uh, but for my own music, I'd rather represent my own interests, which um, go beyond jazz and include you know anything from you know, harsh noise music to modern classical music and, you know, slow jam, R&B slow jams or, you know, bluegrass music or anything. Um, so I try to not hold myself back. Um, but I also don't try to have like one project that does everything. Um, I used to play in a band called Dynamite Club that was a, a, a rock band, for lack of a better term, but we referenced all different styles of music really quickly, uh, kind of scatterologically. And um, I think my pace for giving out information has lengthened or slowed down, depending on how you look at it. So now if I was to do some type of pastiche, I would feel like I was maybe shortchanging all these things I want to reference. So I have different bands that reference different interests of mine. So I have I Hate Work, uh, which, is a, which is a piano trio um, and sounds like a swinging straight-ahead piano trio, except the music is all my reimaginings of songs by this seminal uh, hardcore band named Millions of Dead Cops um, that were around since the late 70s and came up with like the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag and Bad Brains. Um, and are their contemporaries. Their drummer came into some trouble, and I joined the band not knowing anything about them in my, uh, in my early 20s. It was a job for a couple years. So... I took all those songs I played more than 10 years ago and kind of reimagined them instead of being like super fast, speedy thrash songs as being really 
medium to low tempo piano trio music and imagining what that would be and imagining what what the singer would sing if he wasn't you know singing like a punk singer and imagining melodies That's so i really wanted cool. to make beautiful beautiful music out of this abrasive political you know hardcore music that's really cool uh, yeah so i'm working on that there's no record of that that's available yet but that record is made and i'm in the process of you know the least fun part of trying to sell it at this point um, <laughs> which at this point in time is a daunting scenario but it's fine. It, it is. And and we could spend an hour on that subject alone. So. <laughs> right, exactly. But um, so I have that band. But prior to that, uh, I have a band called, like you mentioned, uh, From Bacteria to Boys, which I would consider a modern jazz quartet. And we that band references kind of uh, modern classical music and uh, modal jazz. And um, also, like, there's some there's some like s- slow jam R&B stuff going on in there as well um and drummer's corpse you know is a uh, piece for drummers it was i kind of started it because at least in new york like you mentioned the competition uh, when you're first finding your way in new york um i have found it to be true for me and a lot of the people who i can talk to about this it gets really hard to not be competitive with other drummers and you know feel jealous or just not treat them as people the way you do other uh, instrumentalists just because everybody's fighting over the same piece of cheese um so i wanted to get over that and felt silly that i still had some of those childish feelings so i wanted to do a band with a bunch of drummers and why not hire the drummers who i'm actually competing for gigs with great point um and it was great and uh um, i got over that thing and um so that was the social reason for doing it and then musically it was it's it's a protest piece um and more of like an art installation piece, which if anybody looks up Mike Pride, Drummer's Corpse on any services they want, that, that album's widely distributed and easy to find, as are uh, two of the three from Bacteria to Boys records, which are both on the record label, uh, Om Fidelity, which is a New York label, one of the last remaining real New York jazz labels. Um, so, and then I have a bunch of duet projects where maybe are more improvisation-based with different improvisers who I... Um, admire and like playing with um, and I'm and then I play in many many people's bands as well uh, for sure I'm forgetting a whole bunch of things I have a new trio that currently doesn't have a name it's just called the Mike Pride 3 and we're doing our premiere New York performance um, this week um, so there's always a bunch of things happening I guess that band is more of I don't know what that band is yet but it's, it's jazz music for sure but what it's referencing I, I haven't figured it out yet it's still nebulous but yeah, I try to have these little little kind of monstrous bands that can kind of plug into a certain energy and where I can explore the things that I'm interested in musically and give me a chance to, you know, orchestrate uh, around the drum kit in a more pointed way than you could as a sideman, you know? Absolutely. Well, and, and you know, one of the things that, that, you know, immediately struck me is that you're doing most of the, the composition in all of these groups. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and when you were talking about, you know, growing up in Maine, you know, you, you played a lot of different instruments, clearly, um, you know, our crowd is primarily drummers. Um, and we talk a lot on this show about, you know, how to take control of your career, you know, drummers have, you know, for, for many, many years, always been treated as kind of a side man, you know, in, in, in whatever situation. 
And we like to talk on this show a lot about, you know, here's how you can take control of your career as a drummer and, and move on to that next level. Have you found, um, you know, that that if you control the 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 composing, the, the, all the compositions, is that more fulfilling to you or was it done just out of necessity or, you know, Talk to our audience a little bit about the reason why you do that. And, and I'm, I'm assuming playing the other instruments has certainly helped with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always tried to play a lot of different instruments and I was fortunate that my mother was kind of like a, unable to avoid a good deal. So if she ever saw like some instrument for $30 or less at a yard sale, she would always buy it. So I had all kinds of instruments to mess around on in my basement where my older brother was a professional working guitar player and had uh, produced some albums of his own. Um, By the time I was a little kid, really, I had a concept of what it meant to have a home studio. I was even doing like reel-to-reel recordings when I was really, really young, but I don't remember doing, but I have them, and they just sound like a little kid in a recording studio. Um, So, you know, uh, I would mess around on these instruments and make up songs and uh, not necessarily know what I was doing on these instruments. Um, but it just always seemed normal to me. I like, uh, I like creating things. I like making pieces of music. I like putting pieces together and you know, jiggering around with them, trying to make them sound better. And especially at the time I had no sense of functional harmony. So it was a lot of experimenting to figure out things. Um, but it just seemed totally normal. And even when I was in Maine, I, you know, I had bands of both wrote for like rock bands and sang in a rock band, but I wrote all the music. And so it was always just something I did. Um, I also paint and I used to consider myself some type of a writer. I was trying to write a book for a long time. So that's just always been, I've always been creative in that way. Um, I don't know that it's more fulfilling. I mean, if I wasn't creating the things I create, I would certainly be a much less fulfilled person. Um, and probably be a miserable person to be around. But there are certainly sideman gigs that I get great, great satisfaction from, and it doesn't come with any of the baggage that you have as a band leader, whether it be financial, organizationally, um, the hypercritical side of it. Um, For years and years, I battled the feeling that I always played better in everybody else's bands except my own. And I think it's just because when you write the music and you lead the band, you really hear the whole thing in a different way and you you intimately know all that music. So every mistake you hear, whereas if you're a sideman and the bass player plays a wrong note in the bass line, you might not notice and it might not cause that little hiccup in your in your expression, you know, where so um I don't know if it's more fulfilling, but uh I think in the long term maybe it is. But I would say actually when I do sideman work, it's more immediately fulfilling. Maybe not in the long term, but uh but I just have to create my own thing and and uh, enjoy doing it so much on a different level. Absolutely. Well, and I, you know, I know that you um, teach as well. Uh, so, for our folks up in the New York area that are listening, are you taking on new students constantly, or do do you have kind of a core group of of folks that that you're teaching? Tell us a little bit about your work as a as a as an instructor. Yeah, I mean, I've been teaching privately for a long time, um, especially when I was touring a lot. I, uh, there was a music conservatory in Queens 
that I taught at and then kind of ran an after-school program there, but they were friendly enough that I could skip out whenever I needed to to tour. Um, at a certain point, when I started realizing what I could be making if I was teaching on my own, I uh, left that organization and started teaching privately. Uh, and then, you know, if I'm teaching privately, I have to be more present. I can't be gone nine months a year. Um, but, I, uh, yeah, I do have a core. I probably have a core of a good 20 to 25 students every week that I see if they're, you know, not on vacation or whatnot. Um, and I have a waiting list for new students. The waiting list is only like two kids at the moment. So um, it changes. Generally, I end up getting openings, you know, at the end of the school year or, you know, if somebody moves away. Um, not too many kids or, or adults quit, fortunately, but it does happen. And when they do, I immediately fill those slots in. Um, and if anybody was interested in anything about that at all, they can, you know, they can find me on micropod.com and send me an email. And that, that goes to me. But, yeah, I'm always looking for, for students. And, uh, you know, I generally can work people into my schedule within within a couple of weeks or a couple of months in worst-case scenario. Excellent. Well, so here's a good question. Now, you know, I know a lot of drum instructors in my part of the world, you know, which is, um, you know, the Southeast or the Midwest, uh, depending on where you think Kentucky falls into to geography, right. I guess. <laughs> right. But so what do you think? Um, I, what do you know? I, I say Southeast. Uh, we, yeah, you know, okay. it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like uh, Nebraska or Iowa to me, you know, but, but no, nor, nor me. Yeah. But, but what do I know? Right. I'm just a drummer. Well, um, <laughs> well you're there, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, when I talk to instructors here, it, it, it seems like, you know, the, the younger guys that are coming in to take lessons, you know, there's not many that are coming in saying, you know, I'm a huge Max Roach fan or, you know, I want to play like Elvin. So when you see the kids come in and they're wanting to take up, you know, drumming as a vocation or, or you know, as their chosen instrument, are they coming in saying, you know, I want to learn how to play Avenged Sevenfold or, you know, I mean, I, I guess you're a jazz guy. You're also a rock guy. But I mean, are you just teaching these kids to read and, and going from there and seeing what their musical tastes are? Or uh, I, I'm just curious about the difference in geography when kids come in, right. what are they looking to learn? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure they know what they want to learn. I think they are best case scenario, hoping to create a fulfilling relationship with some um, side of themselves. And, um, I mean, I teach the way I learned. I think I was educated uh, very well by my drum teachers in, in college and in, uh, in high school. And the stuff I worked on with Milford Graves is a whole different thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do basic foundation stuff. Um, and uh, once that is together, you know, we do what all of us professional drummers do, and we keep working on it. And we refine it, and we work on our touch and our sound. And um, insofar as specific idioms of music or goals, that's completely up to them. Um, I don't have a lot of younger people who take lessons who want to be a jazz drummer. Right? They definitely want to rock out. New York kids want to rock out. And, but their sense of what rocking out is, to me, is um, different than what my sense of rocking out was when I was a kid. So, like, 
suffering as I had one student who every time we got to a place where he accomplished something, for this student his reward would be, I'd say, you know, you can pick any song you want and let's let's learn it and be able to play along with the song, you know. And um, every time this one kid would pick a song, he would always barely have any drums at all and it would always just have like a four on the floor, maybe not even a backbeat. It would just be like, you know, a programmed bass drum on straight quarter notes. Like every song, and uh, I never really understood why he wanted to play the drums. <laughs> um, so I would just like write out the program beat and then kind of like ask him to add different material. Like what if we did this style of hi-hat pattern over it? It doesn't happen in a song, but we got to get something out of this. Um, you know, I have a student right now who was kind of having some uninspired lessons for a couple weeks in a row. And then I found out he saw this uh, movie, I think it's called the greatest showman or something like that. And it's got kind of a faux heavy metal theme from what I can tell. And so I just taught him, we worked on that theme song and playing that and interpreting that in some way. So he can start from the basic piece of the basic material of the song. And then we turn it in, into a drum solo so he can work on some technical things and move it around the kit. But, I mean, every single student is different. I have one little guy who's maybe 10 or 11 who, last time I saw him, he really wanted me to teach him about Roy Haynes, who was one of the great greatest jazz drummers ever and still alive in his 90s. And that blew my mind. And um, so I think that kid is legitimately in- interested in jazz. I don't know if I knew who Roy Haynes was when I was 10 or 11. Um, so, so there's so there's, there's hope for the next generation, is what you're telling me. <laughs> if if there's hope in jazz, yeah, I don't know if there is, but I mean, there's there's hope in expression for sure. Whatever that ends up becoming, um, but yeah, there's there's some really interesting people, and you know, I make work. All my students and I are constantly working on their foundation foundational material, and I really try to work on them uh, as an artist, and that can go anywhere. I have some students who end up kind of foregoing the drums and get into writing their own music and I'll help them with their guitar and their bass parts. And I have a student who went on to like produce some hip hop albums that are quite great. And, um, I'm really, maybe I'm like a drumming and musical tour guide or something. And, uh, I just, just need, my purpose is to be there and nudge them in the right direction when they need it. And when they don't need it, let them explore and express themselves freely. And it's up to me to really do the hard work and the deep listening to try to figure out, what's there um, that I can bring out in them, you know? And if they want to do it just really basic, then we can totally go through, you know, Alan Dawson style of of jazz education, which uh, is what I came up to. Well, I think that's a fantastic approach to, uh, to, to, to teaching the next generation of drummers, you know, let them, let them do what they're going to do. Um, You know, and, and, I wish I had had more of a, you know, as you said, a musical tour guide when I was coming up, you know, I, I mm-hmm. think that would have been fantastic. Um, right. So one other thing that I, that I definitely want to ask you about, I know that you um, played in, in a group and, and I don't think you were leading the group, but you guys, um, and I'm probably going to get the name wrong, but it, it was um, uh, Isidore, uh, but you guys went on tour opening Amy Schumer shows. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We've been doing that for a while. That band is called Locksmith Isidore. Okay. Um, so, and uh, it's led by a guy, a bass clarinet player from Chicago, whose name is Jason Stein. 
Um, he is Amy Schumer's half-brother. They have the same mom. Oh, okay. So we have been a band and had done um, three records for different European jazz labels over the past decade. And um, she's a fan of jazz and avant-garde jazz music and music in general. She has really great ears and open ears. And she'd always expressed wanting to do something specifically with her brother and with jazz music. And uh, since before she was who she has become uh, as a a celebrity. And, um, you know, he would mention that and and I would see her around. And we never really thought that would happen. And then especially when she became this huge icon, like, well, that's never going to happen now. And surprisingly, um, that is when it happened. And she asked if... uh, he would take that band to on tour with her. So when she does her arena tours uh, all around the world, uh, she has us open up for her in uh, this bass clarinet, upright bass, drums, avant-garde jazz trio in uh, stadiums and stuff. So it's bizarre. We play for like, you know, anywhere from 15 minutes to 35 minutes, depending on what she wants. And um, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty surreal. And I can't, Imagine there's ever been another avant-garde jazz band to do stadium tours like that. Uh, <laughs> it's not like people are showing up wanting to hear the avant-garde jazz band. I think, I think the first six months to a year after it started, you know, people were like, "What the hell is this?" And you know, you could hear, you could just tell it was weird. And then after a while, people start recognizing that the band's going to happen from social social media stuff, and maybe they recognize some of us in the band. And then people kind of got into it. Um, so it was, it's bizarre and uh, great, but uh, yeah, I don't think that would happen if it wasn't for their relationship, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, it, there have been, um, it's usually the other way around, right? I mean, I've seen a, right. lot, a lot of comedians open up for bands, you know, to, mm-hmm. to kind of get everybody in, in the mood and... Um, you know, and, and I'm sure for bands that are out on tour, it's a lot cheaper to have a stand-up comedian open your shows than than another band, you know, <laughs> that that has a crew uh-huh. and, all, and all that stuff. But you right. know, when I read that and and was checking some of that stuff out, I, I I definitely wanted to ask about it because that is kind of an odd arrangement. But um, you know, like you said, she's iconic now and. That's definitely some good exposure. Um, it, 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 was that, you know, when you guys do that, is it a, uh, do you see it as an opportunity to, to move, you know, the record? I mean, is that the goal ultimately an exposure or is it just a cool gig to do? Yeah, the goal is definitely not to move the records. We actually don't even put records out to sell at the arenas. I was I was always kind of petitioning for that. I was like, man, there's like 20,000 people here. If we sell 1%, we'll be like the highest-selling jazz trio ever. Exactly. And uh, But um, we don't do that. Um, I, that's not my decision. I don't know that it was even Amy's decision, but maybe more so the band leader, her brother's decision that, you know, the focus is her and out of respect let's keep it as that and if people are really interested in picking up material you know all they got to do is remember the name and google search it and they can find the three albums out there or come see other concerts of us where we're not you know in arenas um so yeah it wasn't to sell records i don't know if any of us had any false assumptions about exposure either because um we went in assuming that people were going to pay no attention to us um 
fortunately, out of the 80 to 100 stadium shows we've done at this point, there are only two that I can think of where the audience was noticeably not paying attention to us. There was one where you could hear, like, the arena start talking, and all of a sudden there's, like, you know, 18,000 people murmuring over your set. That was crazy. Um, but that only happened once. Um, so I think myself, I look at it more as uh, we're in this kind of great um, position to be kind of ambassadors to this uh, more niche music, you know? And um, it's really important that we represent it with class and with respect to the situation and also not give them a watered-down version of avant-garde jazz and not play like stadium music. It's important that we go up there and that the sound quality is good and the performances are good and we look sharp and so that we can turn some heads, you know, not go up there and look like totally crazy weirdos and turn people off immediately and like, why not go up there and just be respectable-looking people and then we make some weird noise but they have to sit there and, you know, 20,000 people can't all go to the concession stand at the same time. So they're getting exposed to it. I would like to think that's helping the music in general, um, not us. Um, if it helps us, that's great. I've certainly, I've gotten some, I'm sure I've gotten some work that I wouldn't have gotten because of that. And certainly I have a relationship uh, with a couple different drum companies that I wouldn't have gotten so easily if it wasn't for that. Um, but I haven't seen an uptick in sales or anything like that, but I also have kind of learned to not, not ask. So it's definitely super fun. It's a great situation. Um, naturally, the the uh, financial compensation is fantastic, and um, the way the whole, whole organization runs is really family-friendly. I have two kids and a wife, so like the tours are generally every week, Wednesday through Sunday or Monday. And then I'd always get to fly home for two days to be with my family in between the weeks. Um, so it was a friendly, friendly situation and well worth doing um, whenever we can do it, really. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I, I'm not hugely into the avant-garde uh, jazz scene, but I'm guessing you guys are one of the few that's out there touring 20,000 seat arenas right now, um, which is just really... Yeah, I think we're maybe the first and yeah. only ever, I, I think. <laughs> well, if you remember, people were that way about prog rock, you know, yeah. <laughs> in the early totally. 70s. So, um, uh -huh. you know, you just never know what might happen, but, you know, I think it's great that um, that she has you guys out on the road doing, doing those gigs because it, it, you know, like you said, it can't hurt anything. That's, that's for, for sure. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, that band made a new record this past winter at, uh, we, we made it at Steve Albini's studio, which was cool, but it sounds great uh, out in Chicago. And, um, we'll see the records that we have were done in the, you know, a decade ago. So we have a new record that comes out this, I think in May, and it's, you know, on a real label uh, that has a real PR machine, and I'm sure they're going to push the Amy Schumer angle um, wisely to try to sell some units. So, you know, we'll see. Maybe maybe it will help on the new record. I, I really don't know. I'm curious. I would love to think that it will sell way more than is expected, which wouldn't take much probably, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, look, anytime one of my guests has a record that they're trying to sell, we're going to do everything we can to help with that. Because, I mean, it's just, you know, I don't want to get 
get into a you know a, a gripe session about the 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 state of the industry, but it's hard. You know, I mean, it's really hard. Even if you have a, a like you said, a real label and a PR machine, it's mm-hmm. just uh, it's very difficult right now. Um, it is. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's really tough. And you know, for guys like you that are out there in the trenches, you know playing uh, the drums, you know, and doing it for a living, kudos to you. You know, I mean, we, we all want to be able to do that. And, you know, for the fortunate few that get to, you know, my hat's off for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, you have to be a workaholic and you need a lot of, a lot of luck. I mean, uh, you know, before the Schumer tour, there were plenty of other things that weren't on that level, but it's all of a sudden it's like, Oh, well, this work has come along and, this is really hooking me up for this period of time and string them together. And then if you can have like some, some students who are happy to wait for you while you're gone, if you do it in a respectful way, you know, it, it can work. It's just like a, like a full-time job that never ends. You're exactly right. Now, you know, here recently we had um, Nate Morton from NBC's The Voice on the show. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and he was talking about, you know, when he got the call for The Voice, he was like, oh, cool. This is hopefully be three months work, you know, right. <laughs> and he's been exactly. on the show for seven years now. And, you know, uh-huh. so it's just uh, we really do go from gig to gig um, and, and hope something works out for sure. Uh, oh, do you know? Do you know Guillermo Brown? Have you talked to him? I, I have not. Okay, he's the drummer on the James Corden show. But he was in the trenches of the New York avant-garde jazz scene for years, just like myself. And um, I, I have no idea how it happened. And he has a band called Thieves that's more um, pop-oriented. But he ended up getting a job as being the drummer for the James Corden show. But 10 years ago, he was doing, you know, like ecstatic free jazz. So it's totally bizarre, but that's great. If you can get a gig like that, man, you know, cash that check when you can get it. Same thing with a Schumer gig. It's like, if it only lasts three months, that's great. And then that three months turned into a year and that year turned into a year and a half. And just take it while you can get it. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's just the story of, of, you know, a, a musician's life, you know, the checks are great while you're out there, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and you got to get as many of them as you can. Um, right. They got to nurture everything. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, well, Mike, I really do appreciate uh, the time and, and appreciate you coming on. We, we've really enjoyed, um, you know, hearing about your career and, and the things that are going on. Uh, one of the traditions that we have here on the Drum Shuffle is we ask all of our guests to share a piece of advice for drummers or, or other musicians. And, you know, it can really touch on anything you want it to. But give us your your one best piece of advice for our listeners. And I think my best piece of advice is if you're, you know, if you're really going to do it and um, commit your life to this, you, you know, you're going to sacrifice so much to do so. But you can still have a good life. I have a happy family, and it's it's all great. Um, but ultimately, there's a whole history of drumming and drummers, and there's thousands of drummers all around us all the time. And nobody's going to hire, you know, my neighbor for doing their best Mike Pride impersonation. Somebody's going to hire my neighbor because whatever they present or whatever they offer is right for that situation or feels right for that situation. So I think it's important if people are really going to go into this 
you know, like, what do you, what do you really have to say as a musician? And what do you want to say? And it can, you know, that's probably an ongoing process. There's plenty of things I wanted to say behind my instrument that I don't want to say now. And things I used to say that I don't say now that I wish I could, but I'm just not that person anymore. Um, so you have to trust yourself and pay attention to yourself and realize that I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm only 38, but I think I understand that the key to longevity is presenting the best you. It's, it's not up to me to go out there and be the next Tony Williams or Elvin Jones. Um, if I want to work the rest of my life as myself, I have to present what is only mine to present. You know, we each have our own individual things. There'll be no other musician out there that has the exact set of instincts as me, or I assume not. And um, the best thing I can do is trust myself and work hard to develop myself and fundamentals you can always brush up on. I believe I don't believe that some people can't be musicians. If they really want to, they can they can figure it out. But there's only one person who can be you and uh I think that's the most important thing. Trust yourself, develop yourself, believe in yourself and just keep pushing it around. I mean if if you have something to offer, you know, that's why that's why we're doing this. None of us I don't know too many musicians that are completely delusional who devote their life to this and have nothing to say or contribute. Um, I don't know anybody like that. So I think if we all trusted each other, uh, and trust ourselves, um, maybe successful things would come to us a, a bit more easily. You said it. I mean, you know, from, from your lips, right? I mean, that's that's a, a really good advice and a, and a great point. And, you know, on this show, we've heard other guys say that, you know, be the best you that you can be. Um, you know, and, and I have people say to me all the time, they, they say, oh, you know, I, it must be so cool to play the drums. I just don't have the coordination, you know, and my right. response invariably every time is when you were born you weren't coordinated enough to walk when you started walking you you weren't coordinated enough to run it's uh you know you weren't coordinated enough to to play golf until you picked up that first club you know i mean it's just you you bring up a really good point and the fundamentals can be learned by anybody at any time it's never too late to start playing you know that's yeah that that's what i'm gonna say yeah, for sure. Well, Mike, um, you know, please keep us posted on um, the recordings as as they come out. Keep us uh, up to date on on everything that's going on in your life, and we really do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, and if there's anything that we can do for you uh, over here at the Drum Shuffle, don't hesitate to let us know. No, that's awesome. Thank you, Jimmy. Yeah, oh, you're quite welcome. I will talk to you very soon, sir. All right, looking forward to it. Thank you. All right, bye bye. All right, guys and girls, that's going to do it for episode 17 of the Drum Shuffle. Many thanks again to Mike Pride for taking time out of his very busy schedule and joining us here on the show. Uh, Again, check him out at MikePride.com. Just such a cool guy, and we wish him well in all of his endeavors going forward. As always, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in today. You're not going to want to miss some of the guests that we have coming up. Um, I can't really confirm anything right now, but I will say this. If all goes well, one of my all-time favorite drummers will be our guest next week. Uh, So keep it tuned right here. Uh, You don't want to miss any of those episodes. 
As always, keep your emails coming, the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com. Uh, our web address is the drumshuffle.com. And you can find more about me over at jamieeds.com. So until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.